This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. The Shriver Lecture, which is associated with an award, it's to recognize uh, someone or a group in the community <coughs> excuse me, that has contributed significantly to the lives of people with disabilities and, uh, and to acknowledge their contribution uh, and to recognize um, all that they have given us. So this year, um, it is uh, Susan Meisner from the ACLU uh, is doing the Shriver um, lecture. And after that, we are going to do a few minutes ceremony to present uh, the award. And then we have wine and cheese. So... <laughs> Please stay put, um, and thank you so much for being here and for all that you do. And you, are you going to sit here? Okay. I'm going to sit right here. Okay. Um, and there's the button. Okay. So my disclosure slide. Um, I was trying to figure out how to uh, explain where we are politically uh, to a conference of healthcare professionals, and and um, one of my colleagues has has talked about what we are going through right now as um, a stress test for democracy. So uh, you know, this last year has seen attacks on Muslims, on Medicaid, on immigrants, on trans people, on the right of women to control their bodies, but it's also seen attacks on on what is the core foundation of our democracy. It's, it's seen attacks on the courts, um, trying to delegitimize the courts. It's seen attacks on uh, the right to protest and, and on our free press. So after 13 months, I think the good news is that the patient is holding up pretty well. Um, our democracy has um, been, been solid. Um, our courts have pushed back on on the ban on Muslims, on uh, DACA recipients, uh, and resisted so far encroaching further on a women's right to choose. Um, and our protests and our advocacy, and I say this collectively, not just the ACLU, has, has so far uh, presented, prevented Medicaid from being gutted by block grants and um, has prevented politicians and police from stifling protests and the press. Most importantly, um, our populace, the the lifeblood of of our democracy, is more invigorated and um, aerobic than ever. Um, I don't think we've ever seen uh, a time with this much political engagement since the 1960s, when um, I see some people who who were active back then. So... um, as I review just a few of the things that I'm um, going on, I, I want I will pause and um, in that uh, spirit of involvement, um, note uh, a few ways that you may be able to participate in pushing back on some of the civil liberties threats to people with disabilities. So uh, Lucy and Jerry asked me to talk about a few things. We, we couldn't actually narrow it down, so I'm going to just do a grand slalom uh, through uh, education and aversive discipline, uh, the school-to-prison pipeline, 
conservatorships and supported decision making and then voting. <clears throat> in half an hour. In half an hour. Yes. It's going it's we're going to cover it all. <laughs> Just keeping the stress on. Um, okay. So, education and of discipline. How many of you have heard about restraint and seclusion? Good. Okay. So, I don't have to spend a lot of time on what it is. Um, it, it is a pretty significant use of force, generally, uh, against students. And experts, probably many of you, have already weighed in on the fact that it, seclusion and restraint doesn't have any educational value <clears throat> and should be used only in emergency situations. You probably also know that it is used extremely disproportionately on students with disabilities. Um, I'll get there. Uh, So just a couple of data points for you. Um, 12% of students in public schools uh, have IDEA, so are identified as students with disabilities. 75% of the students who um, uh, they use physical restraint on are those students with disabilities. Many of you know TASH, uh, which is a a very great advocacy organization. Um, They have done a film to explain from the student's perspective what restraint and seclusion is like. And um, I've done just a a few snippets here. Uh, If you want to watch the full video, and I would encourage you to, it's on uh, stophurtingkids.com. Pretty easy to remember. I crawled out of there. She came back and screamed at me. If you don't stay in there, I'm going to strap you in that chair and lock the door. One sat on my leg, one sat on my other leg. Two sat, two sat, people sat on my hands. One person sat on top of me and told me, you don't do this, you don't do that. You must listen to us, do what we say. He slammed me up against the wall, arm barred me across the throat and lifted up so I couldn't breathe and then whispered, how am I supposed to talk to you nice and slow so you can understand? One particular day, we went to see my son, and we were going to give him a haircut. So we took off his shirt, and he was covered with bruises and abrasions, 15 to 20 on his body, everywhere. Yet rest ignored me as I'm locked away in hidden rooms that pointed loudly, I'm worthless. I wanted to tell the agony, but I could not. At my old school from second to seventh grade, I was like an awesome student. I had great grades. I had perfect attendance awards for from second grade to seventh grade for every nine weeks. I mean, I excelled in history because that is part of my Asperger syndrome. I have a photographic memory. That's also a reason why I can't forget what happened to me in school. When I was 13, my family moved seven miles away to a new school district. I was being placed in ISS almost every school day. I spent 35 consecutive days in a storage, what used to be a storage room under the weight room in the basement of my school. It was concrete and there's two metal doors that were padlocked from the outside. There was no windows and no heat. And the only person who had a key to that padlock was the principal. You could scream in there. No one would hear you. Most students did not even know I was present at school that day. 
They'd see me at the end of the day getting on the bus, and they'd be like, where was you all day? In the basement. I remember I was in study skills one time, and I heard my friend in there, and uh, he wasn't allowed out, and he was saying, I need to use the bathroom, I need to use the bathroom. And he defecated and urinated on himself. And he was, he never came back to school after that. So I want to emphasize that these aren't isolated incidents. Uh, since the Department of Education has started collecting data on the use of restraint and seclusion in schools, um, we know that there are tens of thousands of incidents around the country, including in California. And the research that's been done in California is um, <clears throat> we have plenty of it in the public schools, but the most frequent use of restraint and seclusion is in what's called non-public schools. These aren't private schools where you pay $40,000 worth of tuition and um, try to get your kid in there. These are schools that are run by nonprofits but are set up solely for the purpose of taking students with disabilities that the mainstream school classroom has decided don't fit there. And they send them to, they use public money and send them to these non-public schools. <clears throat> um, we have um, found that, that because they're segregated, because um, many of the students uh, have limited verbal skills, um, it is a breeding ground for abuse. And um, ev the, the, this, this slide I should just run through briefly, which is that, that a survey that Tash did of, of parents who had kids with developmental disabilities found that um, most of the kids had been subjected to restraint and seclusion. Um, most of them had had an injury, a physical injury, but virtually all of them reported emotional trauma. So even when there aren't broken bones, scrapes, bruises, lacerations, which happen frequently, um, the emotional trauma is significant and, and really pushes kids out of school. As she was saying at the end, you know, the one kid who, who defecated on himself in seclusion, it's very hard to be going back to school after that. <clears throat> So here's what we're trying to do about it. Um, in California, there is a school district I won't name right now. We're still in settlement discussions with them. But uh, they had a very high rate of restraint and seclusion, especially in their segregated classrooms. Um, when we threatened a lawsuit with the uh, Disability Rights California and DREDF, um, they said, you know, no, we're trying to do better. We want to work with you. And so we have been working with them over the last year and a half, two years, um, for uh, uh, how to improve their practices, uh, and we hope that they will be a model um, for how to do a better job of this. Uh, I also want to mention uh, AB 2657, uh, new legislation that's been introduced in California. Uh, in this part of, part of my talk, I have to report as lobbying time because <laughs> it, is, it is saying that we support this legislation. Um, it is not drastic legislation. It's not banning the use of restraint and seclusion, but it is installing the federal guidelines so that um, it, it is only allowed when a child or someone else is in imminent danger of serious physical injury. Uh, it's not allowed as a form of discipline, uh, as a form of control, and it, is, it sets up 
procedures, if you use it, for how to report, how to work with the child and the family, and how to make sure that the circumstances that brought about the restraint and seclusion aren't replicated, so that you don't do it more than once. Um, the ask of you as health professionals, um, I know you're mandatory reporters, uh, ask about the child's willingness to go to school. Sometimes there aren't indicators, but when there are, um, also consider that it may not be because of falling or family, but because there is abuse at school. And I'd also ask you to consider uh, supporting AB 2657. Um, we really need medical professionals to weigh in. You have much more weight than lawyers uh, in talking to the legislature about this. Okay, so school-to-prison pipeline. If you're pushed out of school, um, the chances are likely that you will be um, pushed into the, the prison-jail incarceral system. Uh, we know that police and people with disabilities don't mix well. Um, people who have been trained to command and control uh, are not really the people who know how to respond when people don't react the way that they expect them to, people who don't respond quickly, people who don't behave, uh, people who don't behave in the way that their training has told them people should behave. Um, so we know that people with disabilities uh, get killed by the police um, much more frequently than people without disabilities. Uh, we know that people are incarcerated. More than half of the people who are in our prisons have one disability or another. Psychiatric disabilities are the highest, but cognitive disabilities, developmental disabilities, especially ADHD, um, is also uh, prevalent in five to six times the rate in the public population. So we are advocating for um, uh, alternatives to police in responding to people who are in crisis, uh, different police training, uh, not, not additional but different police training to reorient them from the start. And we are fighting against um, registries. I don't know if, if I've heard of any in California, but in places around the country, uh, police have been telling families uh, with kids who have disabilities, we want you to register your child so we know when we go to your household um, not to kill them, basically. Uh, and, and we don't really like that model. We think that the police should take that on themselves. Uh, we know that with registries like this, it's generally uh, wealthy white families that take advantage of it and, and, and that benefit from it. Um, <clears throat> okay. So kids with disabilities are entering the juvenile justice system at five times the rate than other youth in the general population. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, we are working uh, to stem that. Uh, we are working, especially in schools, to try and prevent um, schools from feeding the juvenile population. One of the biggest barriers is um, what we're all seeing, which is the drive to have more police in schools. And, and it's understandable, but we have uh, been advocating for uh, 
Uh, I'll explain what we've been advocating for. Thank you very much. Um, Police are in schools, not just in high schools, but middle schools and in elementary schools. And, and what that looks like is um, what I'm going to show you in this next video. I'm going to articulate this for people who don't see A Kentucky deputy sheriff is handcuffing an eight-year-old boy. Now sit down in the I promise you um, that I still have not. I've watched this probably 25 times. Um, the, the actual video goes on for 15 minutes. Um, and um, you would think uh, that with a video like that, you, you would take it to the sheriff and say, you've got a rogue sheriff deputy out here, and you've got to pull him in and, and get him some training. Um, we... Our, our colleagues, our co-counsel, did that. Um, the sheriff said, absolutely not. Uh, this deputy did exactly what he was supposed to do. Um, we found out through discovery that he had handcuffed some between 10 and 15 children um, in the year that he'd been doing this work. Um, that they asserted in their papers, because of course we sued, um, that these eight- and nine-year-old kids were um, committing felonies um, and, um, and uh, have doubled down. I mean, this is litigation that's been going on for two and a half years. Uh, we have gotten a good judgment from the court uh, in, in the Sixth Circuit that this was an unlawful restraint. Um, it, it was excessive force by law. We didn't have to go to court on that. Um, but they won't settle. They are, they are they're planning to appeal this to the Supreme Court. So, it's <laughs> pretty bad. Um, they're, they're furious that we've, we have this video. They, um, it's, it's, uh, and the video was taken by school staff to show the mother how difficult the child was being. So um, handcuffing happens around the country. Uh, again, another one of these things that now that we're collecting the data, we know happens tens of thousands of times, um, primarily against kids with disabilities, especially kids of color with disabilities. Um, this trial in Kentucky, we hope, will 
eventually send a bit of a message. Um, we're also working in Michigan with uh, communities in Flint uh, to say, look, we just don't want police in elementary schools. We can have the argument about how they are or are not in high schools, but in elementary schools, there's no place for them. And um, we would like your support there. Uh, and we're also for those schools where the communities are divided, where some parents feel that high schools are dangerous and they want police there. Um, we're trying to develop model agreements so that police are clear that they're not there to discipline children, that they're only there if there's a danger or crime that they need to intervene on. Okay, 11 minutes left. Uh, conservatorships and supported decision-making, what I usually come and talk with you about. Uh, so first of all, uh, conservatorships, um, as most of you know, it, they're called guardianships in other parts of the country, uh, are a huge deprivation of an individual's civil liberties. It essentially takes legal personhood away from the individual. If we're going to take that extremist step, a uh, step that some have called um, the most significant deprivation of civil liberties aside from the death penalty, we think you should have a right to counsel. So in Utah, we are trying out this argument. We don't know if we'll win yet. Um, we'll learn a lot from the, the experience, and we'll keep trying. Um, because we think that anyone who is being threatened with conservatorship or guardianship should have a counsel to represent their stated interests, not what their best interests are, which is what happens in many states and in many circumstances. Um, that's already having someone else substitute their decision-making for the individual. But have uh, counsel represent their stated interests. We're also uh, promoting supported decision-making, which all of you, I think, have heard about a few times now. Um, now that you've got this under your wing, and thank you, uh, we're starting to work more with our own kind in the legal system, uh, judges. Uh, so we're working with the Judicial Council to try and help judges understand what supported decision-making is, um, to try and encourage them to urge that people try supported decision-making before imposing a conservatorship, as the law actually requires, because in California, you have to use the least restrictive measure possible. Um, and we're uh, developing more resources. The Mind Institute has just finished a series of videos, um, and they are available on our website and the Mind Institute's website. Okay, finally, voting seems important to end here, um, it being the foundation of our democracy. But um, 41 states have laws that disenfranchise people because of their disability status. Uh, and four states have laws that disenfranchise people who are idiots. So that, that is just such a, a, um, an opportunity for satire <laughs> of who would qualify. <laughs> <laughs> to be disenfranchised in those states, but is, um, <clears throat> but just to be clear, it is usually uh, enforced against people with developmental disabilities. Um, so in California, almost everyone who was put under conservatorship also automatically lost their right to vote. Um, the solution was to amend, amend the California Electoral Code, and the standard that the disability community has come up with, which, which I think is just a superb standard, is that anyone 
who expresses a desire to vote with or without accommodations should be able to vote. So whether the expression needs an accommodation or being able to vote needs an accommodation, that's the criteria we need to use. Um, so the law has been updated, uh, thanks to my colleague, Claudia Center, uh, and we just need to get the work, word out. Our affiliates have been doing that, but um, to the extent that you can, um, we would like your help. Also, um, online voter registration, huge benefit uh, to the disability community. You don't have to go down, fill out a form by hand, make sure that they've got it right because the forms that are filled out by hand then are translated and typed in by people who can't necessarily read your writing. Um, but for people who need assistive technology to use websites, almost all of the websites that were completed um, are inaccessible. So um, we did a report showing what the most common errors were, have sent it to all the secretaries of states, have been encouraging people to update their websites, we're making progress. Um, and in New York, we decided to sue um, uh, the wrong state to sue, and we knew that they, they actually fight every lawsuit tooth and nail, but we didn't want to seem partisan, and they're a democratic state, so that's where we sued. Um, and um, they have already improved their website quite a bit, and we are in settlement negotiations there. Um, I would encourage you, I know you are not um, one of the the offices that is required by the National Voter Registration Act to uh, help your clients come in uh, to register to vote. But if you can, if you have the time, ask them if they're interested in voting. Let them know that they can register online. And please let us know if you hear of any problems. Um, we want to make sure that this system is working, even in California, where we assume and think that most things are going well. California was the only state that the website um, was accessible to start with. <clears throat> okay. So, um, the Statue of Liberty uh, is, is the symbol for the ACLU and for the country. And I use her to just begin my thanks. I, I'm, I'm really appreciative of, of this, the Shriver Award. Um, we, we acknowledge that, that it's not just to recognize the, the little bit of work that the new Disability Rights Project at the ACLU is doing, but really the work that my colleagues at the ACLU are doing and the, and the community is doing um, to fight this incredible stress test to our democracy. <laughs> so I, I want to thank you for all of your work. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.